Welcome back to The Couple. Today, I'm joined by Charles Oppenheimer, who's a serial entrepreneur in the software business, and you guessed it, a grandson of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, Charles is also the founder of the Oppenheimer Project, which I'm sure we'll learn more about today. Uh, Charles, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, big fan of the podcast and uh, an honor to come on it. I appreciate that. So no surprise today, um, we're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about your grandfather's legacy. And of course, we're going to talk about yourself. Um, so in reverse order, um, you know, guests <laughs> introduce themselves on the Decouple podcast. Why don't you take a second and, and flesh out that bare bones intro that I gave you? Sure. Um, yeah, I've, I'm a lifelong New Mexican. Um, usually I'm out of San Francisco and I've been working in the software industry for the last 25 years, but I'm just transitioning into energy investing really mostly and trying to su support the nascent nuclear renaissance. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, coming from the Oppenheimer family, that usually, um, is the biggest point of discussion, especially now around uh, around the movie, and I'm really happy to discuss that. I just have a perspective that by representing my grandfather, which is something that we don't do a lot in the family, by speaking about his values, what we think uh, he stood for, that it's better than not doing that. And I've kind of just begun that that effort. Um, and um, yeah, so that's that's the quick intro for sure, for sure. I mean. I got to imagine as a family member, um, you know, the film, and I guess we'll jump into that pretty quickly here. Um, it's pretty intimate portrayal of, of a relative, right? It's sort of like throwing the, uh, throwing the closet doors open in a, in a way, um, you know, very personal story. Um, and from what I understand, um, you were saying, uh, you know, your father, I guess, was your tie to him in terms of, um, you know, telling him the family stories. I don't think you knew um, uh, Jared Robert Oppenheimer personally. Uh, but your father also was was very private about it. So maybe maybe tell me a bit more about that. How how you came to learn about your grandfather, and I guess we'll get into sort of your comfort about having <laughs> his life kind of examined in the way that the film has. Yeah, I mean, growing up in in New Mexico around this stuff, I actually grew up uh, up at the ranch, the same same Pedro Cayente ranch that that really caused the Manhattan Project to be in Los Alamos. Ultimately, it's been in the family since the nineteen twenties. 20s and we kind of lived off the grid in the 1970s and so being a little farm kid essentially like I didn't know or ranching kid uh you know anything in particular about my famous grandfather but as I started hearing more from other people and uh discussed with my father through my life I would kind of learn uh, about this legacy sometimes in kind of surprising ways but it was always a very open discussion not overly emphasized my my father growing up in a really, you know, like a big mansion in New Jersey with famous people all around press, negative press. And like, he just didn't want anything to do with that. That was not the family that I grew up in. So there was kind of open space for us to discuss it uh, in the family. Anytime I have a question, every book I read, I call my dad, talk to him about it. What do you think uh, uh, my grandfather thought? It's a real open discussion. Um, he used to do some interviews and public stuff, but he doesn't do that at all anymore. And um, um, that was kind of the journey. Um, so when I went into work, I didn't have any thought of like, well, my grandfather's a famous guy. I'll go do what he did. You know, like that was just not the, the model I grew up with. So it's taken me a while to get back to say if I could influence the world positively through his values was something I was always told. I feel a little more ready for that now. 
So I got to ask, you grew up on a ranch. Was it like a horse ranch? Do you know how to ride and rope and that kind of thing? Or Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's kind of a summer home, 165 acres and so not really like a working ranch okay. on New Mexico or Canada size. Uh, some places that would be considered big, but Robert and Frank, his brother would come up here in the twenties and just would ride horses all over the mountains. Matter of fact, they'd ride over to Los Alamos up to Colorado. Um, so yeah, I know how to, uh, take care of horses. Um, but it was also off the grid 1970s style. So we had my, we had kerosene lanterns and my, my father, who also grew up on Frank's Ranch in Colorado, um, just loved ranching and outdoor stuff and could take care of a ranch. And I was just a little kid running around. It was great to be that, that kind of in touch with nature. Very unusual for these days. You don't meet that oh, many people sure. who grew up without electricity. Yeah, well, I did my time as a horse wrangler um, and hunting guide on the Yukon Territory. So I had my little my little fantasy romance uh, escape, which was uh, there. You go. But there's some kind of a connection if you've worked with horses. I think that you you feel with folks. So I, I left cool. before I got actually skilled with them. I I can ride a horse comfortably, but that was I, w- I would say the exact same level. thing. Uh, you know, those skills have, <laughs> <laughs> have withered off the vine pretty quickly. Um, cool, cool. I mean, you know, my mom's reading uh, the biography. I didn't have a, have a chance to dig into the 760-odd-page uh, biography, uh, Oppenheimer, American Prometheus, but she was just telling me a little vignette of him, I think, as a, as a child or quite young man, um, saying, hey, ask me a question in Greek and I'll, I'll respond in Latin, like having mastered those two languages. So, uh, like, where, where did he grow up? What was that kind of environment you li- uh, like? Um, I understand it's a Jewish family. Like, just tell me a little bit more so I can contextualize him a bit better. Sure. Um, yeah, he grew up on the Upper West Side of New York, and my great grandfather was really—he uh, was an immigrant off the boat and became quite wealthy. Like you know, they were they were a very wealthy family. Uh, kind of the American dream coming off as a poor poor immigrant, having a very successful business, and uh, that caused that allowed them to have the kind of luxury of you know. Robert was a special guy. I always say, I'm no Robert Oppenheimer. He was a really special genius type kid from the beginning and the family just had a got involved in the ethical cultural movement which was um uh you know uh, derived from secular judaism so in the family they just studied this uh ethical values um but was removed from religion and just had this fantastic school that robert went to that anything that he was interested in had amazing tutor and learning and he was the type of kid who took advantage of that and was just a huge nerd, you know, pretty awkward from what I understand. Um, but just that ended up just driving his curiosity. Famously, something as simple as rocks walking around in Europe. He saw some rocks and said, where did these come from? And that drove his uh, interest ultimately in geology, which he gave a lecture when he was 12. Famously, he got invited to a geology conference and a 12-year-old <laughs> kid shows up. And then chemistry and then physics, just that deep interest in the world which which uh just was innate in in him and it's a little bit passed down through the, right. through the years oh, I, I get so jealous of of those kind of minds um you know when i examine my well, own you're one you're you're a scientist right at least you a medical doctor i would not call myself gotcha. a scientist but okay uh, yeah yeah no That's we were talking nice. before the show about you know having a beginner's mind and I, I do come by it honestly opining on these issues as i do as a, as a non-specialist but i think again there's there's some value in that approaching things in a more holistic sense, um, not being trapped in, in one particular, uh, one particular vocation. Um, okay. So we, we kind of got the childhood, the young man out of the way. I mean, 
I don't want to jump too far right into the story, uh, but it is cool filling in some of these details that the, the movie didn't uh, cover as much. But, um, you know, he's he's in Europe. Yeah, that's interesting because because they did. I won't go on too long because this, this could take forever. But the movie went right into his his adolescent. I mean, his his European study time, which was an important time in his life, but it didn't cover any of his early years. So, yeah, that's a good point. I guess you've seen the movie. I have. Yeah. No, they I've... started off when he was in Cambridge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so he seems like, you know, from what I've been reading, like an unlikely character to have led the Manhattan Project. You know, people comment that you know, the largest kind of group of people that he'd sort of coordinated was a seminar class. He was sort of famously a bit disorganized and lectures and things like that. Like from your understanding, how did he how was how did he come and arise to be the chosen one in terms of the at least the scientific? Like there was General Groves doing, I guess, like the sort of military side and logistics side. But he had, you know, an incredible role in this in this project. Why do you think he was chosen? You know, it has been summarized, and even I have said that. That was an amazing coincidence. But if you look at it pretty carefully, like he did develop the American School of Theoretical Physics. Like it didn't didn't right. exist, quantum physics, before he came over to Europe. So he was building up really important group of students around him, and he was becoming a leader. And something when I kind of dug into sources even outside of American Prometheus, although they mentioned the same thing, is that even by the 1942 um they were, you know, all the physicists knew that you could make a bomb out of this really early on. And he was becoming a really strong voice in colloquiums when there was a group of these physicists explaining it to each other, including uh, Teller and Lawrence. And um, th- they would come to Berkeley and, and discuss. He was already becoming a leader in that small group where it wasn't him telling people what to do. It was that synthesis and really being like a core thing. So when Groves ran into him, it was already he was already kind of leading in that that small area. But it was a stroke of genius by by Groves. Uh, there was some kind of derogatory comment that you know he was no genius except for picking Oppenheimer. Groves actually was incredibly smart, incredibly talented guy, um, and he was a really good judge of character. And you know he made the distinction between you know, Robert not being an administrator like Lawrence was, but he could tell this is the guy for the job. And you know. I do investing. I don't know if you do any. Usually that's the key thing about your investments turning out in early stage. Do you have the spark of somebody who's going to do something? And Groves saw that from from Robert and, and you know, made the choice, right choice of making him the lab director of Los Alamos. So you said that, you know, he grew up as a child in this kind of ethical tradition of study um, within secular Judaism. Um, and, you know, went on to develop this this weapon of mass destruction, which I think he had insight into, you know, the destructive forces that would be unleashed. Um, this is a really complicated time. Like, it's very easy from the comparatively easy times we live in, which may exist in part because of the existence of the bomb. And, you know, the fact that we haven't had a World War Three may well be tied up in this in this demonic invention. We live in a complex world. But in terms of trying to understand your grandfather's role in that and his moral compass and his sense of sort of duty to the nation and his politics more generally, I mean, some uh, certainly some sympathy towards, you know, um, socialist causes and, uh, you know, labor, et cetera. How do you how do you kind of read? And I know you didn't know him personally, maybe through through your father and your own study, um, you know, the kind of decision making that led him to shake Grove's hand and say, yeah, I'm going to do this. His his study itself, like he was so immersed in all forms of literature, science, and poetry. And that was one of the biggest things that distinguished him as a scientist, of course, when, that helped Groves choose him. 
And he also, I've come to understand through just trails of historical uh, statements he and other people have made, had 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 a pretty strong mystical experience, like right around this time where uh, Nolan categorized a poison apple episode, which I tend to disagree with historically. But what right. definitely happened is that he said he had a mystical experience. And after that, he got really into Sanskrit, like a lot of people do, right. and moved over fully to really trying to understand when you have that type of experience, like what does it mean in the world? And his his own study of Hinduism and, um, you know, kind of the value of duty and discipline to transcend the 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 troubles in the world was really formative in his life. He would write letters to Frank saying, duty and discipline is the only way out of the misery of life, you know? And so when a World War II was happening, it wasn't a complicated decision for a young man in America in World War II. They all wanted to participate in the war just generally because it was a true war against good and evil. And if you were Jewish, it was even more obvious, but there wasn't an American or probably Canadian, I'm not as familiar with it on the street, who wouldn't have participated in a war at that time. Um, and it's something that's changed. I, I've never been tempted to participate in a war. I've never wanted to, but he felt the duty to do it. And later as things got more difficult and he's dealing with this terrible power, um, that duty remained. He felt he had, he was a leader of a wartime project making bombs. There was other leaders of wartime bombs, grandmas bolting bombs on a bolts into a bomb that would be dropped on Japan, not atomic bombs, and they felt it was their duty. There was no question that they were going to do it. So I think a lot of that in what he did after the war of trying to control, uh, in, encourage international cooperation, put his own career and safety at risk by fighting for that was all formed out of kind of a sense of duty that he could refer back to these um, literature and spiritual traditions and say, that's that's what we should do now. And 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 that was really big that his education, broad education, not narrow scientific or political education helped him make decisions. It's interesting. I was, I was reading one of uh, your interviews, I think with Time Magazine, um, and this kind of defamation in terms of the poison apple episode, which I understand there's not great, great evidence for. Uh, I can see why Nolan put it in there, um, you know, as a kind of symbolic device from the perspective of, you know, the Adam and Eve story and, you know, eating of the, the tree of knowledge, you know, the discovery of, of good and evil and even, you know, the exodus from the Garden of Eden, you know, leaving these quaint times and pre-atomic times when humanity couldn't truly destroy itself at the push of a button. Um, so <laughs> I, I found it very poetic. It was yeah. interesting. I can understand why you find I'll it accept any yeah, mythological or literature <laughs> allegory. The problem I have with it is it's portrayed in American Prometheus as a almost as a fact. But if you read it really carefully, their language says it's a fact and then they kind of roll back saying, we don't know what happened. So I'd much rather have the kind of art addressing it. I don't know if that's what Nolan was intending or just that, you know, he was having a hard time in college and you have that narrative arc of when you fail as a student and then he rose from that through quantum mechanics and became a success. That's interesting in itself, you know, for any story. Um, but there is also direct, yeah, uh, literal, literary uh, allegories that I, I would agree with that it could have represented. For sure, for sure. It seemed really out of character when I when I saw it, but, you know, whatever. Young men do crazy things, and and uh, sometimes writers and uh, 
directors take yeah, certain liberties. I, I had a bad habit of getting in there and typing a furious like six page re- rebuttal of the facts of exactly what American Prometheus said on this line and what this right. person. And then I let it go. I'm like, that's not, that's not really what's important. Like what's important is what we do next. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the movie did that's, a- that's the downside of having your family in the right media. Like I grew up with that and I'm so used to it. I've had operas books my entire life, but you, you either take it personally and it can kind of hurt you. Like I'd say my dad's more on that side where he doesn't want to read other people's interpretations of somebody he know knew, or I was able to get a point with Nolan's movie where I'm like consuming it, like both entertainment and family, right. you know, and just right. be like, Oh, okay. That's okay. That you're doing this version of my grandfather, you know, and that, that feels a little more comfortable than being offended. So your, your dad um, lived at Los Alamos. I mean, the city looks like it went up over the course of a few months, even I might be off on the, on the details there, but um, does, how old was he? Like, what does he remember of that time? And does he remember, um, you know, his father's reflections on, you know, that moment of, of pushing the, the button on the Trinity device? Well, so he was born in 41. So he's a very young child in gotcha. Los Alamos, you know, just, um, you know, a few years old. And so his memories are typical kid stuff, um, eating sugar under the counter, uh, letting the break out of the car, just stuff like that. His dad coming home. And so he wouldn't have remembered the uh, Trinity test or have any knowledge of that. Um, I don't think Robert actually pushed the button. They had all yeah, groups yeah, yeah. of people. But course, anyway, yeah. he was certainly there and he was very, very much involved with the uh, Trinity test. Yeah. But it, I'm just trying to get like to the source as close as possible. I know we're like three <laughs> degrees of separation away, but like what, what, what are some of your father's, I guess, memories of, of, you know, I, I can just imagine this is, you know, the first time that not the first time that, you know, heavy atoms were fission, but you know, the first use of a bomb, I can imagine. I'm not sure. Like, you know, you hear about certain, you know, my own grandfather, for instance, um, it's a real tragedy. Uh, you know, he wrote letters to his fiance during the whole war and decided to burn them. Um, afterwards, you know, it, was, it felt like a real tragedy because that would have been just a fascinating historic document. But some people, you know, were comfortable talking about their their wartime experiences and traumas, others not. So just curious, you know, personal curiosity, whether um, you're aware or whether your father, you know, has has had any insights into, you know, what what Robert was feeling at, at that moment. Yeah, well, I would say no, my my father and I haven't discussed that moment, um, but I do always like to refer back to my grandfather's words when possible in any of this stuff. I yeah. try to represent him and then I write my own version. I also say, well, he wrote books. He wrote right. letters and he told the world he wrote policy. This he is what we him. should do. And <laughs> that, that that gets lost often with the, the historians summarizing who he was, you know, but you can also read his own words. And of course, he spoke about this particular subject in incredibly poetic terms he did do it long after it happened when he that's what he was spoken speaking about you know um when he said i thought of the hindu scripture and i thought of um arjuna saying i have become death destroyer of worlds um and i think he said that because he was speaking about what he thought about. He thought about literature. He thought about religion. He thought about this thousand year old experience that humans, thousands of years old experience that humans are going through of creating technology, getting it so powerful it could destroy us. And he didn't think about just the superficial, you know, how are we going to attack Russia? He thought about what does this mean for humanity? That's what he said about it. And I basically 
take his word for it because so many people are looking at it. That's not a particularly right. deep thing to say. Now you can find that whole statement repeated by historians, but for many years before this, superficially people would say, Hey, there was Robert Oppenheimer and he was crying about he had become death and he was apologizing. So I think he was just recognizing the power of it during Trinity. Um, and I think his insight on shared existential risk that he said um, much more after the Trinity time, but he said right after the bomb was his most important insight. And he, he said that, um, you know, humanity has to unite in a new way. And that's what he said later he was feeling during the Trinity site. And he certainly said that at the end of the war, that we're all in a tribe together. We can't interact the same way. We can't deal with risks in the same way. Um, and it seems to be the record of what he was saying and thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it makes one such a richer person to have that kind of multidisciplinary background and just phenomenal that he was able to cram so much into one mind, but there's a saying I'm in medicine. Jealous. Well, I was drinking oh beers in college. Why wasn't I sitting there in the <laughs> libraries for, for 15 <laughs> learning, hours? Uh, learning a language every week. But there's the saying in medicine, you know, uh, he who knows only of medicine knows nothing of medicine, right? Um, you know, in terms of understanding your patients and their context and everything else. And maybe you could say something similar about science. Um, but that's an aside. Yeah. Um, so, so obviously science and scientists were, were so central um, to the Manhattan Project. Um, you know, they in a sense, kind of owned this bomb. Um, they, they theorized it, developed it, um, you know, were the technicians that created it. And then all of a sudden after it's dropped, um, they, they lose ownership of it. This moves over to the, the uh, purview of generals and strategists and policymakers. Um, I imagine that was a pretty painful kind of rupture, that sense of a loss of control. Um, I'm probably basing this on some superficial reading, but does that does that strike a chord? Does that that make sense in terms of your understanding of his experience? Well, I, I thought Nolan did a good job, like most of the movie, where you know those were pages and books and actually novels full of information. He summarized it into like Robert's feeling of like it's obvious he doesn't have control over the bomb at that point. Um, I think that you know the most important thread of history there was Bohr's advocacy for international control. And uh, there was many other scientists who saw this coming and some of them who were advocating much more strongly about how important and what an opportunity it was. If you, if they understood that the world had changed fundamentally, that this wasn't just a little tactic, that the path to a nuclear arms race was obvious and would happen unless they could head it off. I, I think that Bohr was he was such a leader, a philosophical leader with the scientists. He said, we could do this. This could make the world better. And he was doing everything he could by getting in touch with the president. And he passed that on to Robert. And so I think it wasn't, it wasn't that Robert assumed that he would have control or anything. It's that they, he was at various times willing to cede, like, we're in a war. I don't know everything about targets. You make the decision. He was willing to go with that, but he was so focused on the idea that there was still a chance and there was a ticking clock where uh, if policymakers could get together and understand how to manage nuclear energy and fission without the obvious risk of an arms race, they felt like they could head it off. And that was a continual painful disappointment for him constantly, if you look at the record. And he just never stopped, even though he failed and failed and things were going the wrong way. And to this day, we have the arms raised. He still kept trying. Um, and I think that it might have been his, people call it naive sometimes, but I think it was what we're trying to do. We're advocating today for nuclear energy against all odds. He was trying to do that 
just because it was the right thing to do it at the time. Right, right. And I, I do want to get into Adams for Peace um, and these these other visions of you know the positive use of nuclear energy. But first, I mean, do you, in terms of this kind of description of naivete, um, in terms of what Bohr's and Oppenheimer were suggesting, um, can you can you walk us through a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of of what their vision was and and their their um, you know policy prescription to avoid the arms race? Bohr, you know, just saw to the heart of things like he did in quantum mechanics. Like that's who he was. He, he, he and he saw that, you know, the growth of technology, which is not limited to fission, um, meant that we couldn't have the type of cooperation with separate tribes and it would end up in cataclysm. So the only reasonable solution to that is to cooperate at that point. For him, it was quite clear. And Robert was the was the carrier of that to presidents and through policy. So they, he, he, uh, Robert was appointed to a committee who he was supposed to be just an advisor to, but in his way of leading and synthesizing, that eventually became the Atchison Lilienthal plan of 1947. And that was a very practical, kind of like military led, industrialist led recipe that said, at this point, before there's an arms race, if we collectively manage the production of fissionable material, we can avoid any one country uh, making a bunch of bombs. And that would put the three big superpowers, which was the U.S., Russia, and U.K. at the time, um, you know, monitoring each other and make sure we make fissionable material together. And we can tell if we're refining it to the point you can make bombs. And it would allow for the production of energy, which was not a big concern of theirs at the time, but they knew that it would be possible. Things like energy would be possible, but you would have to have that kind of joint cooperation. And it stood up with the test of the time. A, it's what we do today. Right, <laughs> Roughly, right. we have treaties and, and, and conference, and that, that's after the arms race. But they were they were suggesting it before the arms race. And so to me, that's proof that it would have worked. It was sabotaged by U.S. bureaucrats and another another way of thinking, which is you know, understandable, but wrong, which is like, let's make a bunch of these bombs as fast as possible. Keep it secret. We'll have all the bombs. We're the good guys. And that's the safest thing. That was Truman's idea out of his own mouth. You know, we'll keep this as a sacred trust. Uh, but they were just wrong. They, you know, it was a misunderstanding when the scientists said you can't keep this secret. The politicians, understandably, and the military, even more understandably, said, let's make as many of these as possible and as big as possible, as fast as possible. And that's we must accept the world as it is. But I get a little hung up in that period because I feel that was so important if that 45 through 47 with real tactical, practical policy solutions had been implemented. It would have been very difficult, very difficult to deal with Russia and even France, but you could have done it if the U.S. was committed to it and we sabotaged it. And so, so just not to get too much into the nuts and bolts, but this would have been to, for the U.S. to retain some nuclear weapons, but not to go gangbusters, building a whole bunch of them and then attempt to prevent other countries from proliferating and... Uh, so, yes, that, those were elements of it. We did have weapons at that point, small number of them, but the main point was uh, uh, cooperation around fissionable material. And um, it, it the plan got changed at the last minute by Baruch, um, a, a bureaucrat. And he said, well, we get to keep all of our weapons and make more of them, but the other two parties can't do that. And he did that specifically per historical records so that the Russians would balk at it, say, I would never vote for that. And then they could point at the Russians and say, they don't want to cooperate. It was, you know, it was a bureaucratic tool. So the U.S. would have had to also agree to get rid of our first weapons, 
um, but not really like give up our sovereignty as a country, not change everything. The UN was going pretty strong. So it was mainly around that control of fissionable material. And there was ladders of like, if a country started enriching to the point where they could make a bomb in the next five months, the other countries could attack them like wow. military okay. force. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't all, you know, play nice. Um, and that, that was the initial plan that would have avoided an arms race. Um, yeah. At that point. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you had the League of Nations forming after World War One to try and make it the war that ends all wars, and then that ultimately fell apart. And then you have the United Nations, which has been much more durable. Um, and I guess that would probably have something to do with nuclear weapons. It's obviously no coincidence that the uh, the, the voting members of the Security Council are all weapon states. Um, so it, it is interesting seeing, and, and with the IEA, and I guess we'll get into Adams for Peace pretty soon here. But you know, a lot of these things came into being, but you know, a little too late down the road once there'd been a significant amount of proliferation. Right. And it was a, I mean, you know, the movie didn't touch any of this, but it was an optimistic time. You know, Truman even was supporting this. Oppenheimer worked for Truman. They were supposedly enemies. He was on his committee with Atchison and um, Lilienthal and all the other politicians. And it it was coming out of a time where not only scientists like Bohr, but, you know, uh, Roosevelt was very behind this and other politicians thought, you know, there's a time where maybe we can cooperate in a new way. Yeah, the U.S. was doing heroic. We were we were the best country. We were a great country. We were helping Germany. We were rebuilding stuff. And this was very tricky, hard stuff. I don't know. You know, I, I don't love people revising World War II and saying, you know, that scientists were morally wrong for dropping bombs. And I say, well, you have to understand the context. And so I guess you could have a military person say, of course, we got into an arms race. You have to understand the context. <laughs> but I think there's a value in being right. There was somebody who was right, like the scientists, you cannot keep this secret and it will cause an arms race. And there was our policy, which was wrong. It was based on a mistake. We can keep it secret. We'll build bigger bombs and the other side won't get any. That was just simply wrong. Right. And so that policy became an arms race out of a misunderstanding of experts delivering it to your face and you disagreeing with them and doing the other thing. But being that as it may, it's history. We've got to accept our world with tens of thousands of weapons pointing at each other. And that's, that's how we live. I mean, in that context, it does, I think there was a real surprise when the Russians exploded their first bomb. And, you know, to be honest, even with the benefit of hindsight, it, it's extraordinary to me. I mean, the U S um, you know, the top economy in the world, um, huge, massive investment in the Manhattan project. Obviously a lot of that was just the figuring out the how to elements, but also just enriching uranium, not easy. Um, and I guess there was probably a shortcut with plutonium production. Um, I, I'm not actually sure of the the physics of the bombs, you know, created by Russia and later on other European countries. But I mean, here you have, you know, countries just like Russia was decimated in this war, you know, tens and tens of millions of people dying, um, so much of their infrastructure destroyed Europe as well. Like it's, it's incredible the speed with which these other nations were actually able to get the bomb, even China, for God's sakes. I mean, obviously they got it with assistance of other powers. Uh, but it's it is a, it is an incredible story. Like, and it, it's surprising to me. I guess it just emphasizes the urgency of of getting one in in those sort of geopolitical um, sweepstakes. Yeah, but that also that helps to be a theoretician and maybe the most expert have the most expertise in the world in this arcane thing. So if you were Bohr, Oppenheimer, Fermi, even Einstein, who wasn't as affiliated with it, you knew they were going to get a bomb. Yeah. Like that's that's what right. the theory says, 100% surety. And, and you're right that it was surprising to a general and a president who sat in a meeting with these guys and said, I have a gut feeling, which is the opposite of that. But that, you know, the theory said they were absolutely going to get it and would have taken this incredible 
effort of saying like, this isn't just a, new, a bomb, but this is a new way to cooperate in the world. And I think what's interesting and where it keeps me going in this conversation is that it wasn't just that one thing. It is the condition of humanity. Are we going to solve climate change? Are we going to handle every risk that jet, that has come out of technology, there's only one solution, which is the same thing the Bhagavad Gita pointed to and every religion and philosophy point to is that you have to work together with tribes that you would use to consider your enemy. And it's the only way out of dealing these with these shared risks. And they just saw it and tried to transmit it to policymakers. And sometimes the world's not ready for, for your wisdom, really. So, you know, Atoms for Peace, I think, is obviously a, a good sort of next next step here. Um, again, a, you know, a little too little too late in terms of the proliferation and arms race that had taken off. But, you know, as I understand it, um, it was influenced by Oppenheimer. Um, originally, this was part of, I believe, a, a kind of public relations or communications effort, both domestically and internationally called, I think, Project Candor. And I mean, reading Spencer Wirtz uh, works about the the uh, nuclear fear, essentially, and and the kind of population level drills of getting i don't think these are the major cities but a city of a hundred thousand people to do a duck and cover drill and time them and then tell them how many would have survived and you know if you get into the shelters quicker this many will will, will not have died compared to the exercise we did last week i mean there was a there was a real move to i think survive a nuclear exchange as that fear became realized by russia getting the bomb as well and the means to deliver it i guess but um there was this movement from let's just instill fear in the population towards something else, that there's other uses of the atom. Um, I was just doing some quick Googling before we got on here, and I didn't find a lot in terms of Oppenheimer's um, contributions to Adam for Peace. Uh, you know, I, I think he died in 67, and Adams for Peace was, I think, 53. Um, Oppenheimer had lived to see shipping port come online to see other uses of nuclear energy. What's your understanding of, of that relationship? You know, my grandfather was very clear in his discussions and his uh, lectures. If you listen and read his lectures, that, that he said that he always thought that the weapons problem and that question of whether we're going to be unified is the main thing. He And he never got past that, right? So it was basically as simple as that. He said things like, "I, you know, we the day after they dropped the bomb, I think um, – or November 2nd, um, which was his last day, 1945, he said, you know, the peaceful uses are interesting in energy, but the question is, are we going to deal with weapons out of this? So very early and very consistently, that was his entire focus. And since it never got where he wanted it to be, like a, in terms of cooperation and settling the weapons problem, he wasn't, he was not one of the big proponents or too involved. I I know that he when he went to Japan, some components of that Adams for Peace program was involved because I'm recently looking at some boxes of, of stuff um, out of our own um, library. And there was pictures of him in Japan and the Adams of Peace program. Um, but other than that, he didn't speak or focus too much on it. Um, Eisenhower was a proponent. He had considered, he had worked a lot with Eisenhower um, and considered him an ally till he did not stick up for him in the uh, security hearing. And after the AC hearing of revoking his security clearance, he really did step away from all policy stuff. And he, when he spoke, he spoke about the scope of philosophy and science over hundreds of years, not anything as tactical of should we have nuclear energy. Um, he just stepped away um, from it. So um, I, I don't want to. So I'm picking that back up. I like Adams for Peace. <laughs> totally. To that's so I will get there because I really want to talk about your work in the Oppenheimer Foundation. But um, wanted to tug on that thread a little bit more. So, you know, a key part of the movie 
um, was this secret of hearing um, regarding um, your grandfather's security status with the AEC. And it was really interesting um, that that um, suspension was revoked, um, I believe, by Secretary Granholm uh, last year, 68 years after uh, the DOE, uh, or I guess it was the AEC at the time, took it away. I mean, that must have been a vindication um, for your family. Can you can you talk a bit more about you know what that what that meant to you guys? Yeah, I mean, like kind of foremost is that when that that hearing happened in this, they, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was still kind of a household name and considered a war hero. So it wasn't just the family or even primarily the family that was offended by it. It was a lot of the, uh, the scientific community and even population thought like, why, why are you doing this? And in some parts of it, even if you look at the political cartoons of the time knew it was kind of like a political or corrupt element. And it turns out that so many people advocated over the years, just never stopped advocating and the AEC and the DOE, um, that we shouldn't treat our scientists that way. Like, uh, you know, it was just, uh, uh, what, what, um, Granholm, which I really respect that she looked into it enough, uh, with her counsel that they were able to say this violated our own rules and fairness. And it was a political, uh, hatchet job, um, of taking a scientist voice away. And I think that one of the reasons they did that publicly is, out of the thousands of scientists at the DOE, you don't want to treat them like that. You know, there could be a huge amount of value out of getting scientists like Oppenheimer who are fully invested in making the world a better place instead of persecuting them. Um, So it was just, it ended up being a really nice thing to hear that they had apologized. It wasn't something that we had actually advocated a ton for in the family, but many, many other people had because Robert Oppenheimer has such a public... um, yeah, persona in that that space, and and the you know what I guess what the committee um, was arguing was that um, he'd been unscrupulous in terms of you know security around the bomb. Uh, information had been leaked to the Russians. It was his fault, I guess, is what the sort of allegations were. Is that is that correct? But it was no, uh, no. It's pretty it's pretty genteel the 1950s standard. So the the real the thing that American Prometheus made so clear is that there was only one reason they were doing it was to take away his voice politically. And so they, what they did is they reached into his past um, stuff that they, he had already been cleared for during the war and after the war that, that the government knew all about and said, you had communist friends. And basically the accusation that, that they accused that they finished with was that he was insufficiently enthusiastic in supporting the hydrogen bomb project. Right. And they convicted him of that. And they said in the, the findings is that, that, you know, that's a sign of a character flaw. And so in the 1950s, even though they were accusing him of this terrible thing, they started off with saying, Dr. Oppenheimer, I know you're extremely loyal American and there's no evidence that you've spied in any way, but we think you're not kind of one of us. That, that was enough in the 1950s to say that, you know, um, we're going to take away your security clearance. And they used a technicality stuff that he had told a um, security officer under duress, you know, saying, well, I talked to this guy and then tried to change the story. But it wasn't any substantive thing that he had ever talked to him about. Um, But they kind of dug up these like little factoids. And it's interesting that in my life, I had to often talk about the substance of why did he say this to Pash at this time? But it turns out it never meant anything. Nobody cared about that. They were illegally wiretapping him. And he knew it was kind of like, 
especially those things about what he happened to say to one security trial and then i mean security officer and they brought up oh, over and over that that just wasn't what was going on they effectively took away his voice his power and convicted him of not wanting hydrogen bombs um which frankly he didn't even he, he was he was against the crash program kind of a manhattan project for hydrogen bombs he was such a loyal guy who was sitting there working on hydrogen bombs, even though he hated them, you know, and giving his advice, we shouldn't have as many of them, but he didn't even go as far as like, it, it was just, he was very much against a Manhattan project type thing for hydrogen bombs. Cause he was morally opposed to them. So I have this really interesting, you know, and all these kind of first, second, third, fourth degree relationships to, to people and, and places and times. But I had this fascinating experience of debating um, one of Canada's premier anti-nuclear activists. And he's a, he's a guy in his mid eighties, and he's lived long enough that 49 years before I debated him, he debated Edward Teller. Um, and there's this fascinating, <laughs> cool. you know, hour-long video up on YouTube. Um, and, you know, he got slayed. Uh, he's, he's, I mean, obviously he was, you know, I think one of the three inspirations for the, the fictional character of Dr. Strangelove. You know, doesn't come off as the most charismatic person. Um, bit of, you know, some Dr. Evil vibes about him. But I don't, is, is it useful at all to sort of like, uh, compare and contrast those two figures at all. I mean, Teller was the driving force behind the H bomb, as I understand it, and Oppenheimer had some reservations, despite maybe being somewhat involved in the physics behind it. I mean, one thing I was glad with the Nolan movie is that they didn't portray Teller and Oppenheimer as these, you know, undying enemies, because Teller didn't support Robert Oppenheimer in the trial and effectively testified against him. He was basically ostracized in in the scientific community that was really painful for him because the scientists really worked well together but in the family we didn't consider it a rivalry and there's this famous story of teller and oppenheimer um working together right after the war a, a graduate student goes in there's having a terrible problem i mean not not right after the war right after the trial months after it and in the institute and robert picks up the phone calls teller in california saying i've got a student here uh, can you help him? And Teller's like, oh, uh, uh, how are you doing, Robert? How's the family? Sure, I'll help him. And so even though they had these disagreements, certainly about science and other things, um, they it wasn't a true rivalry or hatred. Now, it is it's interesting because Teller saw all that stuff and said, we should make more bombs. We should have an arms race and we should make big, bigger bombs. And he was always like that. And I was somewhat would take his word more than the next guy. Like our family tradition was that, you know, that was not, and uh, that was not a way to peace and it was never going to work, but people have different views. And what we got in the world was a huge amount of bombs, you know, and Teller worked for the rest of his life, not only on those hydrogen bombs, but other defense related stuff. And he hated the Soviet union and he certainly did better in that part of his career uh, for his life. So maybe part of what he thought was right, but, um, you know, I I don't subscribe to bigger hydrogen bombs. I think they're fundamentally evil. There's no justification for it. Right, right. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit to to talk a little bit more about yourself now and what you're trying to make out of the legacy of your grandfather and some of your own your visions and, and opinions as you kind of enter into the energy space and the Oppenheimer Foundation. All of it, really. Um, we talked a little bit about you know how maybe Adams for Peace was something that Oppenheimer wasn't focused on, but maybe has been an inspiration for you. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, I am famous for asking long convoluted questions, <laughs> but go ahead and try and answer that. Well, I'm famous for long convoluted Beautiful. answers, so we'll have to watch ourselves. But uh, uh, I've been calling it the Oppenheimer Project, not the foundation, because I'm trying to pull people in. It's not just a family thing and, and kind of putting my grandfather's words and values 
first to try to speak for him, not just to make a movie or an interesting character, but that his actual thoughts, especially around shared existential risk, that for all our our problems in the world, that if we don't work harder on getting along with people who we consider our enemies, especially at the hardest time, when right now it would be US, China, and Russia. Those are the ones who should be at the table saying, if we don't work on climate change together, it's going to affect all of us. It's just a truth, right? If there was some element of unity you can get out of these groups that traditionally battled that can solve things like less nuclear weapons, more carbon-free nuclear energy, uh, approaches to pandemics, there's kind of a need for unity foremost. Um, I don't always know how to get there. You know, he said that philosophically. I believe him philosophically. How do you get there? Um, and I've been called to support nuclear energy as kind of like a, a peace building and a bridge building exercise. I think uh, starting in the U.S., Democrats and Republicans seem to be able to get along more on that issue than almost anything else right now. Everybody knows we need more energy, a huge amount more in the next 30 to 50 years, and nuclear energy becomes more palatable as the fear and the uh, non-science and weapons-based fear of it fade, and we look at the benefits that could happen for tackling nuclear energy and then maybe more more hopeful it could it be if multiple countries are dealing with increasing um, uh, nuclear energy and carbon-free energy abundance, that could be an area that we cooperate even in the midst of conflicts, even in the midst of military and economic conflicts. You could still have scientists and industry people say, well, we're going to get along on this you know, energy thing because it affects everybody in the world. So that's what I'm hoping for in my life. Charles, you might, have to, you might have to put a little um... – cubby on the space station because that seems to be the only place where you can <laughs> get folks from these three countries have really a, have cooperating <laughs> I, I have some wild ideas i thought of mongolia okay uh in a yurt uh, riding in from multiple directions japan uh but i'm not sure i haven't figured that out yet. oh man there, there's so much i want to run from from there but uh, just just again this is just a curiosity probably a distraction but you know, again, watching that Edward Teller debate 49 years ago, um, a lot of the the folks involved in the bomb and the folks reacting to the bomb um, really played on the fear of radiation um, as a tool to make sure that maybe it would never be used or at least that it wouldn't be tested. And um, certainly we did get a, a ban on atmospheric weapons testing that didn't stop weapons testing. It just went underground. Um But, um, you know, that certainly had a, a major uh, legacy and impact Um particularly on, on nuclear energy uh, today and on people's uh, perception and, and uh, consent for it. Um, are you aware, do you know anything about um, your grandfather's take on the danger of radiation? I mean, obviously I can be quite sympathetic, particularly to the physician groups that, you know, conducted things like, it was called the tooth fairy study. Uh, basically they, they got, you know, the teeth of, of um, young children and found strontium 90, I believe in them. And this was a really potent symbol of, you know, uh, something as pure as a child being contaminated by this this awful um, byproduct. Um, just just as a curiosity, yeah. I understand that study was really formative in starting the test bans, exactly. right? Because that, where other things didn't work when people heard about children being affected by radiation, it did, it did change people's attitudes. Um, you know, I don't know 
really my, I know that my grandfather was first and foremost, a scientist and like extremely literal. And like, to this day, when I hear like conspiracy theories, like I'm, I'm like got that science DNA. So I think he would have thought of it in a way that is measurable, testable and like what it really is. Um, but I grew up with a negative feeling around, you know, nuclear weapons, certainly, and as an extension, nuclear energy. And like a lot of people, you start going through this education process and say, wait, how dangerous is it really? Like, who does it kill and what happens? Um, you know, ra radiation caused from testing bombs is a lot different than, you know, what a nuclear power plant is. And I think it's just, it seems to be I'm certain, you know, obviously on, on your audience, I don't think I have to preach to the choir, but for me, I had to, over the last few years, change my attitude, learn about it. And when I looked at the science and the facts, I said, wow, it's not, not, doesn't have the same level of danger that I thought it did. Um, but a lot of that was complete, conflated with the weapons industry, um, I believe. No, it's just interesting because um, I think prior to the nuclear accidents at TMI, Chernobyl, at Fukushima, um, certainly there was a thought that nuclear power plants would be cataclysmic in the event of, of a core melt or, or an escape. Um, and that was ultimately proven to be less serious, but even figures like, like Teller, um, you know, had a, had a imagination that they'd be far more deadly than they were. So it's just a kind of interesting anecdote. Um, so getting back to your foundation, um, and you know, not just nuclear energy, but also managing the risks of novel technologies, I think you have an interest um, in in AI um, and sort of measures and controls on on technology. I'm trying to think of examples where we have reined in kind of the sword side of of like the plowshare and sword part of a technology. And like the only kind of reference I can think of is I think there's an agreement between geneticists um, and your part of the world, somewhere on the Pacific coast, um, to limit certain forms of of biotechnological research. And it seems like you know, human augmentation using CRISPR, like we've sort of, I mean, maybe it's going on somewhere in a lab in China, but we've seemed to sort of said that's sufficiently sacred. We won't dabble in that too much. Um, but give me your thoughts on, you know, humanity's potential. You said there was this brief window, potentially we could have done something different on nuclear weapons and avoided a massive arms race. Um, in terms of current sort of shared existential threats, like say AI, um, where do you envisage Oppenheimer's thinking and, and the, uh, I keep calling it the foundation, but <laughs> the, the organization uh, the project. project. I like that. The Oppenheimer Project. Everybody's welcome to the project. Please go to the website and participate. Um, um, so, you know, I've had a little bit of a, a, a curve on this. I think um, a learning curve, that is. I think the thing that is relevant and, and transferable is the philosophy behind human unity and this kind of technological growth and that the only solution is not really a technology related to this one type of processor for AI, but how are we going to cooperate with these risks? So I think that's the thing that's core and that transfers across technologies and across ages. Um, but then when you apply that, is it, so to me, I don't see that that becomes a policy, like the policy of, uh, that could have worked for the, uh, uh, containing the arms race was not based on, you know, a, just a very specific technology that we can stop and decide, let's not do science. My grandfather loved science. He said, you had to do it. You had to explore these, but it's the method of cooperation and, and a shared goal, especially once technology has gotten to the point where it could kill us all. So I think that's relevant, but I think with the project, I've gone back and forth. My cousin, Kate, who's Frank Oppenheimer's daughter is pretty interested in AI, but I think I've wanted to keep it kind of towards vision 
and say like, there's so many paths to cooperating more internationally and domestically and across the board around fission, which I was given a specific roadmap. He said, this is how you cooperate on fission. This is what it is. I brought it to the world and this is what you do. And I'm no Robert Oppenheimer and you're no Robert Oppenheimer. Why don't we listen to him and put some of those things in place and it could achieve abundant clean energy. And if some of those framework for cooperating against these really difficult things, we know what doesn't work. Making some law in the US that other people are supposed to follow in a different country, that's not going to work. So, you know, uh, we know that like building frameworks of cooperation could lead to a place where we reduce the, the, the risk threat. And then I would keep that agnostic to a technology um, and, and focus in the project on fission, specifically producing more energy and more cooperation and less bombs. Right, hopefully. right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting on the question of proliferation. You know, we've, we had an episode recently with my friend Jeremy Whitock at the IAEA. Um, and certainly, you know, they play a major role in terms of providing friction for a country to to ultimately pursue breaking out and, and pursuing a bomb. Um, but obviously, it's a very costly thing to do diplomatically, economically, not just to, you know, develop um, the bomb, to create the ingredients for a bomb, to create the delivery mechanisms for a bomb. I mean, this is just an incredible societal investment. Um, and we do see some countries paying that price. Uh, generally, it has to do with, you know, geopolitical considerations. And so for me, it seems you know, so much of our task, if we truly care about proliferation, is obviously not limiting the spread of peaceful nuclear energy, but trying to um, ratchet down geopolitical tensions and essentially be peace activists in a sense, right? Uh, there's there's no surprise that yeah. the Korean leadership looked at, you know, uh, the fate of Saddam and Gaddafi and thought, you know, it'd be really good for us to have a bomb. But let, let's explore yeah. that a little. I've been a peace activist, you know, and like if you're shouting from the outside, morally correct, you should do this. We should all get along. That's one technique. I have the idea that if businesses, government, even the military of these countries are saying we have real risks, let's build together uh, more energy production to reduce our risks. That's a different kind of standard. That's what I hope around cooperation around fission, because if you start from a place where it's like the IAEA does very important work, but just, I just see a pathway of like bringing people together to do a productive forward looking thing that doesn't say, let's reconstitute our whole military or relations as the first place, first step. And that potentially that could build up in cooperation around the same material. Um, that's my version of it. Cause I found it too, depressing and just say, let's talk about how we get rid of our weapons only, even though it's the most important thing. Could it be just more addressable to like, let's produce more energy from the create, same stuff. Create the conditions for point. peace, I think. Yeah. Right. And you have the framework to produce more uranium. You can see where it's going. You have the same scientists, same governments. Um, and if you're battling real risks, which is like not enough energy and climate change, that, that might be more palatable than fake ones. Like, Let's make this other country our enemy for political reasons. Um, now, I was just watching uh, in preparation for this interview a snippet of um, our friend, the Atom. Um, Walt Disney was famously pro-nuclear. And it's just interesting. Again, I think that was that came out in 1953. You know, this this candor uh, communication strategy was in place, you know, all kinds of nuclear fear. And at the same time, you know, a real sense of optimism for, you know, the, the use of nuclear science and you know, improvement of crops and, you know, medical treatments and imaging. 
Um, you know, having visited a few research reactors now, it's, you know, extraordinary to learn about what's going on, you know, for one, for instance, you know, neutron radiography, every single um, blade in a, in a jet fan turbine on all our airplanes are inspected at, you know, this one research reactor here in Canada to make sure and maintain that quality control. So planes don't fall out of the sky. Like it's just extraordinary, all the peaceful applications of the technology and the way in which it was communicated. But, you know, the, the image from uh, our friend, the atom is this, you know, this, uh, genie in a bottle and the, the kind of theory of change that I see amongst the anti-nuclear movement is, is this idea that we can stuff the, the genie back in the bottle kind of run time backwards, um, that the pursuit of, of scientific knowledge has gone too far. Um, and that folks like your, your grandfather are sort of villainous in terms of having, having rubbed the bottle. Um, and I think there's, there's a more sort of forward looking way. Like, I mean, just, I think that maps on so well to, uh, romantic notions of, you know, the environmental movement of, you know, we can just move back to simpler times. We can, you know, put the apple back on the tree and, and walk back into the garden of Eden. It's just, it's, it's a one-way street. It's maybe it's like entropy or something. There's something to the forward march of time. Um, another convoluted commentary, but <laughs> if you have any reflections on that, I mean, I, I have, con- yeah, I have convoluted, uh, answers, but I mean, I, I kind of, um, agree that we cannot stop science. And I would also reflect my grandfather's ideas that were words. He said, science is necessary. It's beautiful. You want to know how the world works. And I think fission is that. If fission is an amazing thing that humans have been able to understand the universe at such a deep level, we can release almost unlimited energy. And that doesn't mean we have to make bombs out of it. There's the science that should be ongoing of a constant exploration of our world and there's the application of it and i don't i just don't think it's practical or possible to stop those but it is possible to like decide how we're going to get along even though it sounds naive and impossible i think you just can say it's possible and you have to go for that in terms of advocacy and i've moved myself from a place growing up and with no electricity in the mountains assuming there's too many humans and all we need to do is go back in time to thinking that that's just not going to end up working. We need more abundance. We need more energy. And that's a much more practical path forward for people that everybody in the world wants more of that. And if it doesn't produce a lot of carbon, we could get to the point where we're solving more problems. Um, I I think that's a, you know, I think it's certainly better for one's mental health. I found. Yeah. And it follows organic systems like capitalism and, um, conservatism, the the part of those philosophies that really have proven true is that you put up two systems, one a human design system that's got it all worked out in theory, and you put an organic one next to it that's messy and just generating self-interest. And often the self-interest one works. It's like it's a little more organic. So it's possible to think like, hey, if we focus on producing a lot more energy to solve our world's problems, that's more likely than a top-down decision not to do new technology. That's never worked and it probably never will. You know? Very interesting framing. Well, we've got to stop it at some point. Um, where can folks learn more about you and about the uh, the project, um, the Oppenheimer Project? Yes, the OppenheimerProject.org. You know, it's conceptual. Uh, there's a few bullet points up there. Um, and um, But uh, welcome to go to the website, subscribe. Uh, there's, a, there's a donation capacity, get in touch. Um, and I'm just starting to do a lot of stuff around this, trying to make it a full-time effort on the project and also starting various uh, investment convening things getting people together um that that's that's the idea well you have a blockbuster wind in your sails right now um with the movie that's just come out it's, it's uh, good I'm, I'm 
Hey, man, I'm very glad the, the film came out because it gave us this uh, pretty great opportunity to meet one another and have this conversation. So uh, great having you on, Charles. Good to meet you. And uh, look forward yeah. to staying in touch and Likewise. seeing where the project leads you. I have a feeling we'll be talking again, Chris. <laughs>